Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. One of the things that excited me the most about launching this podcast was getting a chance to explore some of the topics that I don't know very much about, but I'm very interested in, and getting to explore them in a space where we, you and me, get to explore them and learn about them together. This applies to all sorts of topics, whether it's in health or farming, And so the podcast that I have coming up for you is actually something that I have been deeply, deeply curious about, and that is aquaculture. As someone who grew up in a landlocked state, I just don't know that much about the ocean and farming with the ocean. And, and it honestly, just even saying that sort of boggles my mind that you can, you can farm in water and you can grow really beautiful food inside of water. And so exploring oysters with Lissa Monberg of Hamahama Oysters in the Olympic Peninsula was a really special moment for me. And I have to tell you that I think because of all of this ideation of aquaculture, I think I actually might have gotten a little bit lost in like a bucolic idea of, of working with the tides and all of these things. And, and you'll hear it in the podcast that I wax a little poetic about work and maybe don't give it the gravity that it deserves. But I think that's just, I honestly think it's a perfect example for me to to sort of call myself out on because I think so frequently we do assign all of this beauty and wonder and, oh, just it must be so dreamy to those things that we are curious about and those things that are sort of mysterious to us. And so I just want to call that out before this podcast starts. And I want to dive a little bit into the nutrition of oysters before, before you hear this, because they are just little tiny powerhouses. And some of the most potent nutrients exist within these little oysters. And we talk about this a little bit on the podcast, but one thing I wanted to address was that you know, not only do oysters pack this really big punch of zinc and B vitamins, but they also have a decent amount of selenium, which is a trace mineral that's very hard to get in pretty much anything. And that selenium content also offsets any of the mercury that is contained in the shellfish themselves. I know that a lot of people have an aversion to eating many different types of seafood because they have mercury in them. But one of the best things about some of the seafood with higher mercury is it usually comes with a higher selenium content, which offsets that mercury. What a beautiful example about how nature balances things so that they are, are perfect for our health. And I think that oysters really exemplify all of, of nature's work and, and perfection in one little bite. There's a lot of anecdotal things about oysters being an aphrodisiac, but I was recently having a conversation with a a friend that was looking to get off of birth control. And we were talking about supplementations and and many of the vitamins and minerals that can be depleted by birth control pills. And one of my best recommendations is that you eat a bunch of oysters or actually take a whole food oyster supplement because it has so many of those things that birth control depletes like zinc and vitamin B12, vitamin A, and copper. All of which, all of which are concerns on the birth control, but these are also all nutrients that we need for our sex hormones, our reproductive hormones to function properly. And so I don't think it's, it's a mistake that these are considered an aphrodisiac when they actually really do support our production of testosterone, of estrogen, 
as well as things like sex hormone binding globulin. And so I just can't recommend that you slurp up some delicious oysters and clams as soon as you get your next opportunity. And I also, I really want to lend a little bit of weight here to the other side that we discussed, which is the forestry side of things. We're here on this podcast and we're talking a lot about a really base need, which is food. And food is, you know, at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's part of our, our need for safety is to be, to be fed. And the second part of that is that we need to be sheltered that we need to find literal, actual, physical safety. And I think that we have really lost connection with the materials that shelter us. Wood is a big part of that. And there's a lot of evidence that, you know, that human history was sort of propelled forward as a, as a need for, for tender, for fires, which we talk a little bit about on this podcast. But I also just want to remind us of the wood that often sheathes our housing and that that has to come from somewhere. And I think we're all getting a little bit more acutely aware of that as wood prices skyrocket to the moon, um, getting a little bit aware of where that wood comes from and that this is that this is something that is a part of our lives. Just something for you to consider as you go into this podcast. And I'd just love to hear if you eat some oysters after this. And I have something really exciting for you. Hamahama has been kind enough to give you all a discount on their oysters that will last through the end of May. And that discount code is for 10% off. And you can have them shipped directly to your door wherever you are using the code GROUNDWORK with a capital G and a capital W10. And I'll have that in the show notes here. So I just encourage everybody to try out Hamahama's beautiful clams, oysters, mussels, and to just really get to know these bivalves by eating them. I think that's what I write. Like one of the best ways to explore something new is to, to taste it and to experience it. And I'll post some resources too for shucking in the podcast notes, but I think that learning to shuck an oyster, it, it, this tactile skill can really bring something into your kitchen. And so I just really encourage you to order from Hama Hama using the Groundwork 10 discount code. One more little piece of business and whew, I am so uncomfortable with this piece of business, but it is the business. And that business is getting this podcast out into the world. And I need, I need a favor from y'all. If you could hop on to wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, which is a really big driver of the algorithm, and give this podcast a review, I would be so appreciative. And now I'm going to do something wild and crazy, and I'm going to read one of the podcast reviews. And if you'd like your podcast review read, well, leave a review and we're going to read some. And so this is from Hello, Kate Carr, and it is entitled A Warm Hug. Kate brings an energy to any space she enters that feels like a warm hug of wisdom. Her podcast, Groundwork, is the culmination of a life lived below the surface, one full of thriving while connecting to people, the land, and herself, and ultimately the evidence of a life that creates abundance for you to enjoy. You'll walk away from every episode with a deeper understanding of the world around you that calls you back to yourself. Even if you've never explored your own health, you don't know the difference between dirt or soil, or if you've never heard of her guests, please don't skip this show. You will be drawn into a new world and encouraged to explore how connection looks in your own life. Enjoy. Cool. You guys, I've been working on something with my coach. I've actually been working on digesting the good. My beautiful coach told me that the good that we don't digest turns to rot. And I have experienced this in my life. And so part of my reading these reviews are an act of my digesting the good. And it's hard to receive a compliment. And I'm sure a lot of you will resonate with that. But this is, this is my work to receive it. And I'm just going to do it live here on this podcast. And I encourage everyone to go out there and digest some good, to take in those compliments, open to them, let them in. 
make sure to thank the people that gave them to you too. And so Kate Carr, you light up my life, woman. I hope you're listening to this. Okay. Without further ado, no more chit chat. I give you Lissa Munberg of Hama Hama. Do you want to, do you just, do you want to start with introducing yourself or do you just want to carry on talking about uh, trends in, in land and sea? No, I mean, I, I, can, I can introduce myself. My name's Lissa. I work for the Hamahama Oyster Company. We are located on the Olympic Peninsula, Washington State. Our business is uh, turning 100 this year. Technically, we've only been farming oysters for 50 years. So that's a strange little caveat there. We like to say we're in the business of food and shelter because we're a timber company as well as a shellfish farm. And we're in our fifth generation. So there's lots of us. That's incredible. I think that that alone, that 100 years of farming and five generations of farmers is really incredible. And then you have this really diverse business model where you work in both forestry and oysters. And one of my first questions was, you have a really interesting peek into both agriculture and aquaculture and the the sort of symbiotic relationship between the two, because I'm sure how you manage your forestry operation upland directly impacts the waterways that feed into your oyster system. Totally. So we're very, very lucky as oyster farmers. We're just geographically blessed. Where we farm is a really beautiful body of water. It's it's relatively remote and pristine. And but what we're really lucky is that we are our own upstream neighbor. So and you know rivers, the estuary is just an incredibly rich and productive environment. The health of the river is really essential to the health of the downstream of the marine environment and the kinds of nutrients it brings, the kinds of organic material that fall into it. All of that will influence the types of algae that grow and, and oysters even built their filter feeders. So they'll consume tiny bits of organic material as well as, as well as algae. So it sometimes feels like the responsibility of not messing that up feels a bit like a big one, but we also just try to approach it with lots of gratitude and humility because we're also always learning. I mean, I would say that it's, Definitely having the downstream shellfish farm has influenced our timber operations. Also the fact that we are a family run business and we live next to, we live on our tree farm that has a big impact in how we manage our, our, our tree farm. Like we want our kids to be able to walk into the clear cut and be able to pick blackberries. And I feel like the fact, you know, our, our family orientation and then our downstream oyster farm really help us do a good job managing our tree farm. Yeah. You have a lot of touch points within your ecosystem. You live in your ecosystem, you farm in your ecosystem. There's this sort of generational stacking of visions within that ecosystem. And I, I imagine that gives you a lot of feedback. The fact that the oysters are giving you feedback on what's happening upstream and the forestry, like your lifestyle, the way that you live and interact with the forest is, is feedback for how you steward that operation. It's just, it feels like there's a lot of touch points. Yeah. And it's, it's funny how it's changed as I've gotten older and we clear cut. I don't like, and for many people, clear cutting is a a real touch point, but it's the type of tree that grows on our farm and the way the economics are currently just the economics of, of timber management currently is are that the Douglas fir tree likes to grow in the sunshine. So, so it's not like a, an East coast forestry operation where you can have a commercial species growing up through the understory. The Douglas fir trees is kind of evolved to come back after a stand replacing event, namely forest fire. So it's a, it's managed through clear cuts. So, you know, when I, w- I went to school in Vermont and so I grew up here in the eighties and nineties, and it was not cool to be from a logging family at all. It was, I mean, it was during the spotted owl wars and it was just very like you were either pro logger or pro environmentalist. There was no room in the middle. And, and when I got to Vermont, I would find these magazines like Vermont Woodlot magazines where they would have a story about how to market your timber to produce like the best financial return next to an article about this bird species and how to manage your stand to like promote more of these birds. And it was so refreshing to have this middle space where you can acknowledge that you live in, in a world where you have to pay property taxes and send your kids to college, which was I was very grateful for, and still love the forest, love old trees, love big trees, love the ecosystem. So since my youth here, it's, there's been more alignment between the environmental community and the some types of logging companies. 
and where I was going with this is when I was little and we would harvest, we would clear cut. I would just feel it so deeply. I would cry over these beautiful forests. And one of the things that's true about our, our tree farm is that we, we harvest on a longer rotation. So the forest has time to get beautiful before you cut it. And it's much easier to, to harvest on a 10 year rotation because it, because there's nothing or not that anyone does but that with Douglas fir. But if you don't ever let the forest get interesting and kind of diverse then it's easier to see it as just a product kind of like how you know we talk about we don't eat pig we eat pork like we have all these like these barriers between the impact of our consumption and one of those is like this is this is a farmed area and this is a wild area and they're not there's just a real clear demarcation between those areas so we let our trees get 60 to 80 years old before we cut them, which is still obviously much younger than they would grow naturally, but old enough to be beautiful. And I would, I would just be really sad because, because I grew up, you know, riding my horses and biking and hiking through these forests. And, but then as I'm, as I'm older, like these stands that caused me so much heartache when I was in my teens, now they're forests again. And I can, so I can kind of, I'm like able to take a longer view of things and not get so caught up in, in the immediate present and just see that the forest is going to be fine. You know, like in terms of the regenerative power of this ecosystem, like this, if humans were to go away or tomorrow, this, the forest is going to be fine. Nature would just take over. And I think take, take over right away, right away and regenerate isn't even, I mean, it would just flourish. And I think you hit on something. There's so little nuance and, and gray area in, in the way that we think. And I think farming seems to inspire a lot of black and white divisiveness without really understanding the sort of spectrum of nuance that exists between, right? I mean, I raise pigs and beef and chickens and there is a lot of just wanting it to be black or white and not seeing this full nuance. But I also feel like there must be a special lens that you get being a fifth generation farmer where this land has been stewarded by your family for a hundred years. And I don't know, I don't know how you absorb that, but I'm sure that you absorb that in some way with a better ability to maybe see, to have long-term thinking to think about those things in that 60, 70, 80 years. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about our centennial because I do marketing for the oyster business. And so I need to try to understand how to talk about it. And a couple of things are very true. On one level, a hundred years is not that long. Like if I've been working for Hamahama most of my life, so I've been working here for at least 20 years. So if you break it down into chunks like that, it doesn't seem that, that long. But if you try to figure out what's going to happen a hundred years in the future, then a hundred years seems way long. Like there's no way we can predict that. The reason we have, my family has what we have is that we had an ancestor who was lucky enough to be in the right place in time to buy land as the way railroads were headed West. So definitely, you know, the, the story and we didn't, we didn't, you know, it's embarrassing right now we're doing the very best that we can and we're fully committed to being here for the next hundred years. But when the company was started, it was seen as an investment and it wasn't until it's complicated, but the person that I'm, my mom's grandfather managed his family's investment on behalf of, he had five sisters and a mother and his, his dad had died. And so he was very trying to make the best economic decisions for these people because he felt like he owed them their dowries or something. I mean, it was a wholly, totally different era and different time. And he was a product of, of his environment. And so, you know, we clear cut 10,000 acres of old growth forest. So it's not like we've been farming for hundred years. We've only been farming for 50 years, but sometime it, like, so I've been trying to think about what these people were thinking. And, you know, I, I think there are many, many motivations, but the biggest one is that it's impossible to escape your economic system. I mean, maybe not impossible to know. I mean, the best, the best example now is climate change. Like we know we shouldn't burn fossil fuels. Can we stop? No. You know, we, I, we transport our oysters in trucks and we fly to events and the oysters get put on FedEx trucks or, and taken to airports where they fly to the East coast and all our staff drive to work in their you know vehicles and all of our customers do. So it's like, even when you know you shouldn't be doing something, if you live the way the economic system, the way the infrastructure is structured, you still do things, even though you know that maybe it's not the best thing to do. And that's, that's been the best way that I've been able to have kind of sympathy with the decisions that were made 
in the eras is that people were trying to do their best and were unable to escape their economic reality. Just, just like we are now, like a hundred years from now, people will be like, what were you thinking? <laughs> like, did you not read the UN climate report? Like, what were you thinking? And we just have to say, I'm sorry. You know, we were, and, and we have to do our best in this moment to kind of create the future that we want. And, and my ancestors did that too. Like they started a Girl Scout camp that's just totally beautiful north of us on the, on the property. And they held on to the valley bottom and the tide flats as a place of refuge for their family and a place to grow food. So we have very industrial roots. And then at some point, you know, the great depression happened. And then a couple of sons, one son who was supposed to be our farmer, he died in world war II. So the family just kind of hunkered down and changed its trajectory. We're probably an older timber company than Weyerhaeuser. I mean, that, that was, those people were my family's colleagues at one point that we completely fell off the turnip cart, but I'm just really glad to be the size that we're at and able to make the decisions we can make because we're here for the long, as long as we can make it and we can make decisions because based on some of our family values. So it feels like a strong place to be. I think there's an aspect, at least just some of the way that I heard that story was that there is some impossibility to escaping your economic system and your dependency on that system and the interdependency that you feel. But I think there is a shift in mentality when we put down roots and the land that we live off of and that we extract resources from becomes home. And what I heard was over that 50-year trajectory, there's this shift in this is an investment and this is a business to this is where a family is living and growing and flourishing. And this is a different connection to land. Completely. And, you know, even now, like we're a fifth generation family farm, we have many different stakeholders and shareholders with many different opinions about what to do. But our common thread is that we absolutely love our shared property. And it's in some ways, it's just a really beautiful microcosm of how I wish humans would treat the earth, you know, where, where you just bicker over how to keep it beautiful and healthy, you know, like the best, best way to like pay your bills and make this place awesome. And then where you love each other, you know, ultimately like you have like a family connection. So I do probably spend more time, more time thinking about this little family business of ours and trying to glean the lessons that I can't out of it. And that's one of them is that it's, if you think of it just as a community of people trying to make the best decisions for this land that they need to live on and that needs to sustain them. It's really kind of beautiful. I think that's really beautiful. And I think if that were the outlook for all our other communities, both familial and not familial, that you look at the land that you're on and you just want the best for it. And and you want to be able to sustain yourself and your family economically, but also you want to sustain the next hundred thousand years environmentally. And I, I mean, what a beautiful thing to bicker about. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it was like, like we, we shouldn't, you know, or there was someone who was complaining about a clear cut and it was like, we can't have, like, if we're going to make money off of clear cutting, it needs to be in our backyard. You know, I mean, it's be like, that's where there's some kind of integrity because it's just very, I mean, the human impulse to put things out of sight, out of mind. And in the Northwest, the timber industry is the most visible one of the more visible economic activities that is kind of a, a flashpoint for these environmental issues. But, you know, because a lot of the things that we consume are produced elsewhere, you know, the, the mining for the minerals that go into our smartphones and my Prius, that doesn't happen in my backyard, nor does the disposal of those things. So I feel like this is a very easy, we're, that we're still very blessed. And I didn't mean to talk about, about tree farming, but that, but the, no, I wanted, um, I wanted to talk about tree farming. That was important to me. I think this is an important part of Hama Hama. I mean, oysters are just like these innocent, beautiful, totally lovely little meat rocks, as, as my brother calls it. They don't, all they need to flourish is clean seawater and sunshine there. I mean, that's even then, like when we call it farming, it is farming, but we don't have to, and, and a lot of work goes into them, but there's very little input. You know, there, there's no feed, there's no fertilizer. There are oyster veterinarians, but it's not like they're going out there to inoculate their herd. You know, they just, um, so in terms of a way to grow food, it really blurs the line between wild capture and what people think of when they think of in, like industrial food production. I think there's some, I mean, oysters just excite me and they, they really pique my curiosity as somebody who feels really, who's been landlocked for most of, most of my life, that this feels like the most foreign and beautiful concept. And I love nothing. I mean, if I, 
if I could eat one thing for the rest of my life, I think it would be oysters and liver, which I don't think is a coincidence in terms of, uh, you know, two incredibly nutrient dense. You're a little like zinc deficient or something. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> oysters are like really, full, really high in zinc. Super um, high in zinc, selenium, iodine. They have a lot of things that we miss in our diet, I think, and, and something that we as humans crave. There's a really beautiful book by this person named Rowan Jacobson, who we now call a good friend. He wrote The Geography of Oysters, which is maybe his best known oyster book, but he also wrote a book called The Living Shore. And it talks about, it's like he and a couple of biologists are on the search for this mythic native oyster reef on Vancouver Island, the native oyster being the Olympia oyster. But it it goes from there, from the story of this expedition into this examination of the role that shellfish played in human evolution and then then human migration. And it's just just a really lovely book. So if anyone is interested in kind of geeking out on on the beauty of shellfish and the way it might fit into human, into our human economies and lives, I would recommend this book. It might be hard to find. I think it was just published once, but it's called The Living Shore. I've read The Geography of Oysters and it's stunning. And I think there's pretty solid evidence for the theory that the human population bottlenecked somewhere around 100,000 years ago. So anatomically modern humans uh, bottlenecked down to between 600 and 4,000 members in the South of Africa. And that one of the few things that truly was able to sustain us as a species to prevent our extinction was this consumption of oysters. And so I think... but it was shellfish. Yeah. It was shellfish (laughs) either way. Right. And they find, they find the oyster or the, the shell middens, it's called a midden. And it's like a, it's a, it's a heap of shells of sort of discards and they're just vital. There's also, there's some anthropological evidence too, that, that this helped increase our brain size, that this really nutrient dense, thing that we were eating really helped kind of push along our evolutionary track. Yeah. We've had lots of jokes about this. Like is harvesting oysters so, so simple that even a caveman can do it? Or do you need, you know, like what came first, like the oyster or the brain? And it's (laughs) probably the oyster. (laughs) Yeah. Probably the oyster. (laughs) And, and they're so beautiful in their simplicity. I, at least from my perspective, there's something really... And they're a powerhouse, both nutritionally, but also for conserving... And you can talk more about this than I can, but conserving estuaries and, and water. Like they're really... They clean the water. Yeah. The science really isn't as simple as sometimes it gets boiled down into like a shellfish industry marketing where it's not like they re- remove nitrogen. They, they change its form. And so then, then maybe if you harvest the oyster, you're removing the nitrogen, but they certainly clean the water of, you know, they're filter feeders so they can reduce the the cloudiness of the water. And that lets the sunlight penetrate deeper and that lets plants grow. And I mean, and they also just provide lots of habitat for creatures out on the beach shelter from, especially on an intertidal beach like ours, they, they provide shelter when the tide goes out from the hot sun or from freezing temperatures. So they're there are lots of, or, and then when this tide is in, they provide shelter from other predators. So there are lots of animals that just really depend on having oyster reefs. And, you know, every, every place is gonna be a little bit different on the, you know, on the East coast there, especially after hurricane Sandy, there was lots of discussion about the role that East oyster reefs would have played in mitigating the impact of hurricanes Yeah, as a um, breakwater. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely feel, I didn't like growing, we, we grew up and we, we identified, I think mainly as a logging family. My mom is my mom's family company. And my dad, he was a logger. Like he walked out in the woods every day with his chainsaw. And so that was, that was kind of like how I identified. So I was able to discover, I grew up working on the beach and then in the our little farm store in, in high school. But for some reason, I, when I came back from college, I felt like I had this moment to discover oysters as an adult. So, which was important and powerful because then I could kind of fall in love with them fresh, you know, like fall in love with them as, as raw oysters. Cause we, we didn't eat them, eat them raw. We always ate them cooked when I was little and just kind of discover them as, as a, to something to eat raw. And so it was a culinary discovery and then just kind of figuring out how, they fit into the, the food scene in terms of our, you know, human ability to produce protein. So that was fun because I think they're magical too. And people are like, oh, your whole life you've been working with these things. But it's, there's always, it seems like there's always more to discover. Yeah. I just, just in getting to research about this, I discovered so much. I didn't know about one of my favorite foods 
and just all the, there's many different methods of farming them and, and how they reproduce and how they do create these reefs, almost like a coral reef that provides this whole little mini ecosystem for other species. And then there's the texture and the miroir of them and the way that they sort of reflect the environment back to you in the way that they taste. Right. Yeah. There's a really lovely book by this woman named Eleanor Clark. And she does this really good job describing oyster flavor. It's just like, it's like some intimations of, of the sea. Like you can say it tastes like the sea, but it's more than that. And it's really hard to put your finger on. But if you eat oysters from different bays, you're going to get, you know, their perspective on what was happening in that estuary or that bay and that particular moment in time. They're going to tell you about the salinity, the water temperature, what kind of, you know, what kind of algae were growing there. And it's not like there's, it's not like you can, it's not like it's easy to understand. You have to really open your mind and frankly, eat lots of oysters to be able to start to develop a palate, but it is very intriguing. And I like to just kind of focus, like let the magic of it and, and all the unknowns be very present because it's, um, you know, if you describing the flavor really precisely, I think misses the point. Yeah. It misses your connection in some ways, but I think just as somebody, and I feel this way, I've eaten a lot of beef over the years, but when you get caught up in all of those adjective and descriptors, in some ways, I think you leave your body and the mystery of that relationship of what's happening in your mouth. And it becomes an intellectual experiment that it doesn't have to be. And you're right. There is this element of, of magic and unknown. And I think, and I think the oyster in itself feels that way to maybe a lot of us outside of the industry where just kind of a mystery, this, this beautiful little creature that is supremely delicious, very nutrient dense and magical. Yeah. And really incredibly versatile. Like, like, they, I, we just had a fried oyster dinner last night. And when you eat them cooked, it's like, this is just a protein that's healthy and delicious. And I'm going to feed my family. Whereas if you, when you eat them raw, it's like this whole experience and it transport you various places. So they really are a very versatile food too. Cause you, you can just use them as sustenance. You can just use them to, you know, fill your belly, or you can have them change the mood and kind of set the stage for these other experiences. Like, and that's kind of the difference between, you know, eating them raw and then cooking them or putting them in a casserole or any of the various other things you can do. The other thing is we also grow clams and (laughs) clams are also lovely and sweet and no one really writes books about clams, but they are also very delicious. So I want to mention them. We are, I was going to ask you about clams because I'm really, uh, both my husband and I really love clams, both raw and cooked. I think that they have, they have so much flavor and a very different texture, like a very different mouthfeel than an oyster does. And I was going to ask about, about clams because I think the oyster, the oyster gets a lot of attention, at least comparatively. And clams are, we're the home oyster company. I mean, it's even in their name and clams are one of, you know, one of our main products. I think maybe, maybe the clam, the time for clams will come. I like that idea. And I think, you know, before we hit record, we were talking about trends, both in in culture and in ecology and climate and the way that things change over the course of 10, 50, 100 years. And I think that we see those culinary trends, right? We see, I don't know, kale had a heyday. And uh, uh, oysters, I think, are having a much more deserved heyday than than kale. But Yeah, but, but you know, it's like, I've, yeah, I think that probably they were like very unexpected in 2010 and now people are they're just kind of like sushi it's more like part of your life especially in seattle to like go eat oysters every once in a while whereas just maybe 20 years ago it might have been kind of hard to find a raw oyster in seattle at least not in the kinds of restaurants that were generating lots of buzz and excitement like there were always the old the kind of old school steakhouses serving oysters but like when my grandpa started the oyster business our main product was an oyster that was taken out of its shell and packed into a jar. And, and now we still chuck oysters and they're, they're amazing, but it's like very, very small percentage of our production. Versus having oysters in the shell where they're retaining all of that brine, all of the liquor, and you can really, and you get to taste that unknown magic. Yeah, exactly. And even like, even, I don't know, like five years ago or 10 years ago, I mean, the pandemic's been weird because you have to add two to three years on top of any memory that you have. So I guess maybe it was 10 years ago. I was, we were doing events in Portland and the oyster chuckers at these really, really nice restaurants 
were rinsing the oysters to be sure there wasn't any shell. And and so even in a place like Portland, so, you know, it's taken, it's taken a while. It's funny. Yeah. It has taken a while. Yeah. And I think it's, we were eating them and we were like, what, what is wrong with these? And then, yeah. (laughs) And no more flavor left. Yeah. I mean, there's some flavor. It's just, just not, it's just like a sad memory of what it should taste like. Yeah, that's sort of devastating. It is. It's fascinating to see that, that the oyster has has come along in such an interesting way. And I don't know, my husband and I often eat oysters. And I think it's a little bit more accessible to the consumer now. People have oysters shipped to their door. And I think people are learning how to shuck oysters. And this thing that feels that feels difficult, maybe as a food, it's becoming a little bit more people are learning how to shuck. Yeah. We've tried really hard to get that message home because I am not a particularly good cook, nor do I have like particularly discerning tastes. Like I have been known to open a jar of spaghetti sauce and just eat it and tell myself about it with a spoon and tell myself it was gazpacho or something. But I, we were teaching these oyster classes, like these cooking classes in Seattle at these very, very nice cooking schools where people really, really know what they're doing. But what we would focus on is just teaching people how to, uh, how to shuck with the oyster so that they and people would would come into the class kind of intimidated by the concept and just thinking that they weren't going to be strong enough or it just wasn't going to work right. And it was one of my favorite things to just watch their trajectory of, of kind of intimidated, kind of setting themselves up to not be great at it. And then just to see that it's actually not about strength. It's just about finesse and knowing a little bit about what you're doing and come out of it just being these really excited oyster shuckers was super fun. So yeah. I think it's a really satisfying skill. There's something, yeah, there's something that leaves you feeling capable and there is just kind of this perfect spot. There's just, I mean, just like so many things, there's a little sweet spot. And once you find it, it it feels like you can really start to churn through them. Right. And they're so shareable. I mean, I think especially after the social isolation of the pandemic, a platter of oysters that you share with people is, I think, just really kind of a lovely experience. Like we have a little restaurant here on site and we're thinking about what kind of things to carry. And one of the ideas we've floated around is like just more shareable platters, kind of like a, what is it, what do they call them now? They call them like tray passes or something like that, where you're just like boards. I don't know. I'm out of the, but yeah, but they, they kind of are communal in how they present themselves. And frankly, even at a party, there's always a couple of people who are just something about shucking oysters speaks their inner animal nature and they just want to sit there and shuck oysters through people. And then there are other people who just want to eat them. So it always works out. Pretty well. you, you don't know who that person's going to be before you bring the oysters into the party. You just, you know, someone's totally unexpected can just elbow up and put the gloves on and kind of just shuck oysters all night long and have the best time. It's my husband. Yeah. Right. Totally. And I'm the, I'm the being fed. I also know how to shuck an oyster, but I just sit there and we eat dozens yeah. at a time <laughs> yeah. whenever we get our hands on oysters. I was, we were eating clams the other night and I have, I have a just about two-year-old kid and he was having so much fun eating clams. And I think it's like the interactivity of them, like the shell and then the, just like the, like, it's not just like eating a cake or something for both oysters and clams. You have like this thing, this little plate, the shell, and there's just, that's kind of something to do, you know, it's yeah, just kind of it's very fun. tactile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that it's that kind of tactility. I don't know if that's a word, but that sort of tactile nature of it, that kind of connects you back in, right. It connects you to your food. It connects you to the way that you're eating it. And it connects you to other people, right. The shucking and sharing and passing of oysters has something, there's a real connectivity to it. And one of the, one of the things I was going to ask you is that I think one of the beautiful things for me imagining farming oysters was you're really connected to nature. You're connected to this tide pull in and out. And the actual farming is dependent on just kind of the rhythms of something and the seasons. Yeah. Yep. And every season, every year is different. I mean, I don't work on the beach anymore, but our farm is very much dependent on the tide cycle. Some, not every farm is some, some places the tide, they don't have maybe as big a tide swing. And so they can go out and harvest the oysters. Sometimes the oysters are knee deep in water. Sometimes they're armpit deep in water, but they can always kind of find them when they need them. But we have maybe a 14 to 17 foot tide range here. And so the oysters are underwater and there'll be times when, when people will, we just, people are like, I want to place an order. We'll be like, great. We'll get those. We'll be able to harvest those in six hours. And there's really nothing we can do about it until then. And it, it happens, you know, less so now, but in the past people would want to come out and, and film something. Like someone would be doing a, a shoot 
and they're like, we're going to show up at this time. And this is what we want to see. We want to walk out on the beach. And then we want and it's like, okay, well, let's just check the time calendar because all of this is, I will just need to see what the moon thinks about your itinerary. <laughs> and I, do, I think that's, that's one of the probably, hopefully for everyone who works here at Hama, because now we have, we have this restaurant on site. We have a, a pretty big crew. I think that working within sight of the farm, within sight of the tide is it brings a little bit of perspective to their day to day to where you really are working around this system that is way bigger than a human, human system. You know, you can, and it's not just the tides, but like you're saying, the seasonality, the temperatures, how much snowpack there is, and then how much fresh water is coming down in the summer will, I mean, it, we talk about oyster flavor, but it's also, it determines what kind of algae you're growing and some, and maybe even what kind of other animals are living on the beach. Like there's this carnivorous snail, it's called a moon snail. It's really pretty. It just does way better when there's a drought and it can, it can like live further, like higher up in the estuary when, and if we've got a couple of dry summers. So it's, it's, there's just always these really dynamic systems at play. And it feels mainly like we're observing, like we're just trying to figure it out and adapt the best we can in the moment, but it's definitely, we're definitely not controlling it. And, and I, that's, I've always kind of liked that too. It was spoke to, I mean, it definitely makes life hard and <laughs> easier if you could just control it, but it keeps things interesting. I think it, I was reading a book at some point last year and they talked about during the Renaissance, we really switched from a cyclical nature of thinking that we learned from nature, that there are tides and that the moon waxes and wanes and that the seasons come. And there's this just sort of circular and cyclical nature of, and if you're in contact with nature, that's only how it works. You know, it's death into decay into life again, and all of these things into a more linear sense of thinking. And I think that's only been more pronounced as we hit the industrial revolution and the green revolution, that we are very goal-oriented, we're very profit-driven, very short-term in our thinking, because we don't see the way that, that these cycles of culture and history sort of repeat and flow. And so I think that there's something so grounding and it is. It's hard. I, I think hard about working with nature's cycles, but it's it's hard in that it's rewarding, and it reminds me of, of what a small human blip I am in this in this space. Yep, completely. And as you were talking, it kind of reminded me of um, just the benefits of, of working for a family company that is able to take a hundred year view. It's just fundamentally different than working for a company that intended to liquidate in five years you know, where they were just building something then had an exit plan. You just make very different decisions about your relationship to your property, to your employees, to your competitors. Then if you were like, okay, well, I'm going to be having to work with these people for the next 30 years. How am I going to treat them in this moment? And so the kind of fast pace, and I think one of the things that people are so interested, because like many people are interested that we're a fifth generation family farm. And, and I use, and I give this spiel about how, just down the street, we have friends and neighbors who've lived here for 12,000 years because, because I'm just very aware of it through kind of with the industry that I'm in and where I grew up. But it's also, I think that in even in historical, like a human history, it was very common to stay in one place for five generations. Like that was the norm. And so people who, who don't even live in the same town they grew up in maybe have some kind of atavistic affinity towards the idea of staying in one spot for so many years, because it is, is something that people are really interested in about this company. And so I've started being like, why, why is it so interesting? And I think because there's something about it that's really compelling and that it's increasingly rare. It is increasingly rare. And I was thinking about Wes Jackson, who wrote a really beautiful book called The Genius of This Place. He's a farmer and, and biologist in Kansas. And he worked to develop a perennial cereal grass, which is aside the point. But he has this idea about homecoming, that there was a time when we would we would leave to go to college and then we would come home and that we've lost this sense of homecoming and i think we've seen that as rural areas have emptied out and people have favored moving to cities and moving out of their family property and we've seen that that we've seen that in farming and the way that that skill is passed down or not more often than not not passed down that people don't want to come home to be in that same place. Yeah, we, we talk about this a lot because we're always trying to recruit people to work here because it's the labor issues are challenging. There's not that many affordable places to live and not that many young people. It's mainly retirees. But the people that we 
a certain type of person who grew up here sees working on the beach as, or she's working in, in the industry as kind of a failure. Like that's what your parents did. That's not something that's exciting. And we'll kind of compare that to someone who is like, we have an internship program and we just get all these amazing applicants for the internship program because they're just really interested in, in experiencing this way of life. And it's like the interest in the internship program versus how difficult it is for us to get like a local kid to sign up for a summer job on the beach. It's, they don't really, they need, you sometimes need outside perspective to appreciate what you have. And that's, and I wish, you know, one of our goals is to try to make people proud of the work that we do and the, and the ecosystem that the work supports, frankly, and feel like this homegrown pride in their place because it is really cool. And the, the thing about oysters is that, is that like, we can't fence off our oyster farm and say that this is an organic oyster farm. We rely on the surrounding community to keep the water clean. You know, I, I talked about how we're really lucky to own the upstream property, but we have neighbors and the neighbors have septic systems and we need the neighbors to care about what they do with their property because it will impact the water. And it's easier to get them to care if, if they care, not because I don't really think they care about our job or our business, but if they care about living in a world where they can walk out on the beach and pick up oysters, then it's a much more powerful motivation. You know, they like they care because they want to live in a world where that's possible and they see themselves as being oyster people and part of oyster culture. So that's one of our little missions. And we started, we, I'm sorry, I'm totally rambling now. We, we started to try to do that, but we would just call them open farm days and we'd let people come harvest oysters and clams and um, they would pay like a just retail price. And it was so fun and so fun for kids. And they eventually got so busy that we're, we're, it's tough to do them because we just get swamped, but we're bringing them back this year just for a midweek, midweek instead of weekend situation. But one of the goals there was to just kind of create like people, especially because the Seattle area is growing so fast that we want people who move in from away to know something about the interdependence of the human environment and the downstream shellfish environment and just see how these this is worth protecting. Yep. And the best way to connect, right? To connect back into that ecosystem. And I think to connect to the idea that you are a part of that ecosystem. We talked about earlier, you know, what we don't see, we just, it just kind of goes out of our mind and out of our care because we're not there for the lithium mines to make the battery for our Prius or whatever it is. And I think when you get to see and connect to it, and I think that food is an incredible vehicle for that connection, you begin to care in a different way. And so when you go out and you collect your own oysters, your own clams, your own mussels, whatever that is, and you do that work and it's good work. And I do want to, I want to emphasize that because I loved that you said like this is good work. And I, as a side note, I feel like we have forgotten trades in our rush to send everybody to college and forgotten that number one, college isn't for everyone. And like, not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody excels in that space. And we've forgotten that trades are good work. Like it's good hard work. And I, I mean, I know this because I farm and I would, most of the time I would rather be mucking a barn than doing anything else in the world. Yeah. I did an internship at a newspaper right out of college. And when I got back, then I moved back for Christmas and the internship ended. And then the woman who was managing the farm store put in her notice. So I, I was like, Oh, I will manage the retail store. And that's kind of how I started working here as an adult. But, and it was very, no one should have put a 23 year old in charge of a business, but it was a very small business. There were like two employees. And so it was mainly doing the work. And I was, I remember just cleaning the live tanks and just being so happy, just feeling like this happiness bubbling up out of me, just, just so happy to be moving and to be smelling the frankly kind of dank, <laughs> like sulfurous, like live tank smell. But I'm just like so happy to be doing that. Yeah. I feel the same way. I think a lot about Wendell Berry's question of what is a human good for? Like, what is a human for? What is their purpose? And I think some of that is just to to work in connection. And there's something that feels good about getting your hands in the soil or in the ocean or being, you know, armpit deep in oysters, which I can only, I can only imagine. And to do that work, to do kind of just... And you drift off to it. Like my mind drifts to another plane. I'm not present in that same way when I'm doing that work. 
Yeah, totally. It's very meditative and relaxing. Yeah. In fact, even now, like my job is increasingly theoretical, increasingly in a computer, but I cling to some of my meditative tasks that are not the most efficient use of my time in terms of getting the information that I'm trying to get, but are very useful for my brain to just go into kind of a creative, busy space. You know, like you guys, it's like the, the joke, the adage that you can get your best thinking done in the shower, you know, when you're like, like occupied, but not really. Yeah. It's the default mode network. Like it's the space that our brain goes into creative thinking when we're, we're just kind of in flow or in process of doing. And I think, and I've said this before on this podcast, but whenever I go out and I watch the cows chew their cud, and they've just kind of gone to another plane, another dimension. And I think it's that ruminative space that allows ideas to coalesce. It's where we put together and synthesize all of our thoughts throughout the day. It's not when we sit in front of our screen with our foveated vision and we try to focus. It's when we just kind of let it all, let it all hang out. Yeah. I do have to say though, that the work that the beach crew does, like sometimes the beach is the most amazing place to be. Like there'd be eagles and seals and you might see the Northern lights. You might, cause in the winter time, the tides are low at night. You see the sunset and the, and the sunrise and you can see fresh snow on the mountains. You might see bioluminescence in the soil because sometimes there's this algae that produces bioluminescence. And when you walk on the beach at night, you can see it. Like all of that is true. It is also really hard and cold and (laughs) physically very difficult. And like the the schedule is very difficult because the tide changes about 45 minutes every day and there'll be kind of 10 days on, four days off. And the beauty of it is that you can't exactly put in overtime because the tide comes in and you have to go in. So it's not like, um, like if you were a farm worker on, on an organic vegetable farm, you know, you might work really, really long hours. That doesn't happen on an, on our oyster farm, a farm like ours because, because of the tide, but it is, I don't want to, you know, I don't want one of my, one of our crew to be watching this and being like, okay, let's uh, see at midnight, but like grab your clam rake. It tells us how poetic it is. <laughs> and I think it's easy. It is easy to over romanticize the farming life and to put it in this but it's, it's true. Space. Like, it's, you know, like humans, we were talking about the black and white thinking, like it is all true at the same time. Like it is true that it can be really awesome and romantic and you can get some really good thinking done. It's also true that some days it's going to feel like a total slog. It's the, uh, I call it the yes. And yes. And <laughs> also, <Right>. also <laughs> this, I know we're running, I want to be mindful of time. And so one of the things I really wanted to ask you, I'm not sure it happened on purpose, but at Hama Hama, you've really diversified. And I think as farming goes into a space, I mean, we see a lot of monoculture, but I think we see a lot of We don't see a lot of diversification to ride the economic climate trends and culinary trends. You mean like going from timber to oysters? Going from, yes. Yeah. So that was very much on purpose. Like my, by the fifties, like they, we'd logged the old growth in the twenties and thirties and then kind of hunkered down during the depression and world war two and lost a bunch of our property. And we just kind of didn't, I planted huge victory gardens. My great grandma was a tremendous gardener and she was the one who was a big proponent of Girl Scouts. She was just kind of an epic lady. Then by the fifties, they were like, we can't afford to pay taxes on this property anymore. It needs to start making some money or we're going to sell it. And so my grandpa was his story was that he couldn't let such a good trout stream get away from him. But I think also like the, his brother, a brother of his who had died in world war two on I- Iwo Jima, they were very close. They were only a year apart in age. And that brother had been, he had been studying to be a farmer. Like he wanted to grow, he wanted to grow vegetables on the farm because we have some fields. And I think my brother was kind of honor or my grandpa was kind of honoring his brother's legacy by moving his family to the farm to try to keep it in the family. And so he was just kind of casting about for something to do and noticed the oysters growing on the beach and started the oyster business in the fifties. So it definitely was an effort to diversify economically. And even now I feel like I wish, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to do that. We've diversified our, our marketing offering offerings, if you will. We, you know, we have a restaurant here on site in a farm store that kind of protects us against some vagaries in like the wholesale markets. We have the online store that really relied on when all the restaurants were shut down during the pandemic. And we're just starting to like incorporate more foraged items like stinging nettle and Douglas fir tips, like make a jelly out of the, of the new growth of the trees and just 
just trying to figure out because, because, you know, I think we're committed to investing in our oyster farm, but every year there's some kind of new freaky Friday thing that happens, whether it's a algae bloom that changes the color of the water or is a toxic algae bloom. And just like last summer with the, there was a heat dome on the West coast and some, our, our clams like steamed open in the beach on the beach. It was just like, Climate change is being felt in the shellfish industry currently and, you know, will continue to get worse. So I, we are kind of, again, in the position where we'll need to cast about and figure out what our next step is in terms of what are we going to produce in this place? I think there's an aspect of, you said earlier, you know, we adapt the best we can. And I think that that is true of farming. There's so many different variables from season to season and then from decade to decade. And I think climate change will really shift that. And there has to be some ability to adapt, to evolve, to diversify, and to be somewhat nimble. I mean, I think by nature, farming is kind of a big thing and, and it's like turning around a ship, you know, it's not the most nimble of, of industries, but building in that diversity and what you do helps create some ability to move in changing tides. Yep. And so it's like, it's like the ability to keep moving forward and to keep, to stay optimistic. Cause if you get pessimistic, you're not going to be innovative or creative. So to like to keep your, keep your spirits up to keep moving forward and then to just but be clear about what, what you're up against. Um, I mean, that's kind of the, the challenge right now. And, you know, I think there's one of the things I want to do for the centennial and maybe we can touch base in August and see, I'll see if I've accomplished it. But I want to like reach out to people who are experts in this field and in, in the forestry field and get their perspective on what the next hundred years are going to bring. That was my because, next question. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I, I don't have, you know, I think we'll do more, I think there'll be more recirculating systems used in the shellfish industry to help protect against various bacteria and algae. I think there'll be different, there'll be different probably species being grown. Seaweed might be much, much bigger thing. I mean, I, th- I think we'll be okay. It's just, it's just going to, it's going to require a lot of creative thinking for sure. Yeah. I think it's, I think for everybody, I think for most industries, but I think for farming in particular, it's going to require a lot of creative thinking. And what I love about what you're talking about is there's some collaborative open sourcing in that too, talking to other people. And I think it's really easy to be kind of insular on a farm. Yeah. The shellfish industry, I'm sorry, but the shellfish industry has always, one of the things we've loved about working in it is how awesome our colleagues are. They've been very, because the thing is, it's like, it's so site specific, like a kind of buoy system that works on your farm might not work on a different farm because you have different exposure to wind and to tide and your, your substrate's going to be a little bit different. So everything's a little bit different. And, and the, thankfully the demand for the products so far outstrips supply that it's just a pretty collaborative and friendly industry. And it, it will, we will need more of that for sure. I love that. That's really beautiful to see in farming and to get to, no, no. I think that, that in communication, I think that's also where creativity happens. We talked about kind of the shower principle, but there's also that talking to other people and how other people are, are thinking about things. Just in the name of time, have I missed anything? And then I have one final no, little I question mean, I, for I think- you. Yeah, I, I think this has been really what a pleasant way for to spend my my morning. So thank you. Great. I have one last question that I ask everybody, which is, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork, like the groundwork for generations to come, or just for yourself, whatever that is? Okay. I mean, I def it's definitely for, for generations to come. Like when you first said that, I was trying to think. I think staying open to new possibilities. You know, as I as I move from being like a young employee in the company to being one of the older employees, I, I want to stay really open to new ideas coming from the bottom up and just see those as being the future, the future pivots of the business, you know, are probably going to start with people who have a completely different perspective than I do. And so laying the groundwork would be like creating systems that allow those discussions to happen that allow those ideas to flourish. One of the things that I'm really grateful for is the people who set up our company set up, we had a board of directors, we had a decision-making framework that helps us navigate some of the like issues common to family businesses about different opinions about how to do things. So, so we have these decision-making structures and continuing to foster those so that we can do the things that we need to do and, and, and hear from the people that we need to hear from in the future. I, yeah, I love that. I think that's so beautiful. And I think that's true of both familial farming, but also farming as a whole to make space for what those incoming generations see and to create containers for those conversations to really unfold. 
I think that's, that's really great. Yeah. It's like you, you need a way for to like, you don't, you don't want to like have to relearn everything, every generation. So, so you, you need inputs from all angles. Where can people find you? Where can they find Hama Hama oysters and clams <laughs> and clams? <laughs> exactly. Um, our website is hamahamaoysters.com, but we are doing this silly thing called March Clamness this, this month where we try to get people to buy clams. It's good. It's going so, so it's very, very funny. And then, so that's probably the best way, but then if they're in the Northwest, they could come by our farm and we have a little outdoor restaurant that is very rustic, but it's really delicious. And you can see the seals and smell the salt water and watch the tide go in and out. Well, I think that's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for spending your afternoon talking to me. It was really exciting to get to learn oh, more about pleasure. oysters. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.